Hello and happy President's Day. Today, we get our first break after a full month of having to see Alec Murdoch every day. I can't lie, this year is the most excited I've ever been to have a day off to celebrate America's presidents. The timing worked out pretty well. On Friday, the state rested its case against Ellick, and we got to see the defense's first two witnesses. An old-timey coroner who estimated the time of Maggie and Paul's deaths by feeling under their armpit. Yeah. And the public information officer from the Colleton County Sheriff's Office, who explained that on June 8th, 2021, the Sheriff's Office and SLED put out a press release letting the public know that there was no danger to them after the murders of Maggie and Paul. Why did she put out that release? Because there was, in fact, no danger to the public. Alec told investigators that his family was targeted because of the boat crash. The defense, of course, wants a jury to think that Maggie and Paul died later than they did, therefore closing the timeline for Alec. And they want the jury to believe that SLED targeted Alec from the very beginning. This week, we expect them to go hard on those two narratives while they try to pick apart the state's timeline in the hopes that the jury will forget the month of lies that they just heard about. So on Friday night, I sat down with Liz and Eric and we talked about why we think the state's case is strong enough to survive the defense's counterattack. So cups up, everyone. Let's get into it. So... Let me start off, guys. It's uh, day 20, as Judge Newman said at the beginning of the day, <laughs> almost like it's like we're we're being held captive and we're counting down the days we're, we're imprisoned. But how are you feeling? How are you feeling, Mandy? A lot better at the end of this week than I was. I don't really remember last Friday <laughs> too well, but I feel like this is the first real sense of like a shift in momentum and a like real big change in the last day and in the court of public opinion I have noticed that you know I my views haven't changed as far as who I think did it and what happened but I'm really glad that the state finished where they did and I'm glad that the shooting evidence got in there or alleged shooting yeah, I think that the the state's in a really good position right now. And I was not impressed with the first two <laughs> witnesses for the defense. <laughs> I know I'm biased, but like, God, coroners in South Carolina, it's like everyone knows that it's a, jo- it's a joke of a position. I'm sorry, but like a lot of, some are good, of course, but there's a lot of very, of not good ones. And that guy was talking about uh, the, estimating a time of death based on touching armpits and the warmth of armpits, like the 1800s. In the South, in the summer, like in June, on June 7th. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's pathetic. But I'll tell you, do you know coroners are supposed to, their job, like historically, is to take care of all your worldly possessions that are on your body. So that's like literally their job is to, if you have rings or wallet in your pocket, checking time of death is part of it. They have a lot of power, though. They actually can, Liz, have an, their own inquest where they can actually do a, a trial on the cause of death. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen that. That's been done before. So they do have that jurisdiction. And they are, if the sheriff, uh, something happens to the sheriff, they are next in line uh, to scary. take over. Mm-hmm. Scary. It is. That's crazy. Um, 
But I think Dick and Jim went out and grabbed those two witnesses because they're not on the defense witness list. So I almost think that he wanted to just present two witnesses so that he could start the weekend. And because this was definitely cutting into his nap time. Eric, how are you feeling? Um, I feel real good. You know, I always believe in a strong start and strong finish in everything you do in life, like trials in life. They're, they're basically the same. You want to have that strong start, strong finish. And I think we felt a little uneasy in the middle of the trial when there was this shift to prove um, the thefts and the 404B evidence came in and it kind of derailed the murder evidence. But I think the past three, four days with starting with Marion and then coming in with Owen and then with Kenny um, and now Kelly, I think what we have seen is an amazing amount of strong circumstantial electronic evidence in addition to Alex's own words being used as a sword to gore himself. I think this case turned from what everybody originally thought would be a blood case, a scientific blood case or a DNA or or GSR case into an electronic case where it laid it out to the second of what he did I don't think we can overlook that an innocent man would not have told the number of material and significant lies that Alex repeated, not only to the police, not only to Ronnie Crosby, not only to his friends, but to his own lawyers, because his own lawyers permitted him to sit for three more um, interviews. The, The Corey Fleming interview, I think, turned out to be the most deadly for him. And then the the whole debacle of the roadside shooting, the fact that he would make the state have a sketch artist to sketch the man who purportedly shot him and he knew it was Cousin Eddie, he should be sued for obstruction of justice, for wasting governmental resources. And then I saw, you know what? That sketch looked an awful lot like you said, Anthony Cook. I mean, was he about to blame Anthony Cook for shooting him? That is one of the most disgusting things I've seen in all of this because Anthony Cook, first of all, has been through a lot. The second thing is that he has been one of the more publicly gracious victims of the boat crash in in terms of he forgave Paul. Paul made amends to him in some way, according to the HBO documentary. But also Anthony did not include Buster. He's the only boat crash victim not to include Buster in his civil case. So... If somebody, you know, he's shown this family great grace is what I'm trying to say. And and he, to, for, to find out that, like, if he was doing that uh, consciously or even subconsciously, a shame on him. Uh, it, uh, one of the most shameful things I've seen in all of this. I want to ask you a question, Mandy. What do you think about the drugs? This, And I'm going to capitalize it with D, drugs, whether it's is he a $50,000 a week addict? We think no. Um, what about Paul's discovery? H- how does drugs now fit in as either an explanation of why he did what he did, or is it become now a defense du jour? Well, I saw somebody on Twitter saying that they changed the motive, and I don't think that that's true. Like, I think the motive still stays the same, which is Paul was a problem. 
And Alex had a ton of problems that were mounting and about to come out. And he does not want a nosy son who also got him involved in this huge lawsuit and made his money problems significantly worse and um, in risk of being exposed. I think it's very interesting. I mean, I as soon as Alex said Paul is a little detective in that interview... I've really been curious about that and like it's like he kind of said it in a bitter way and I think we've talked about this but I, I really do think that Paul was asking a lot of questions and that Alex did not like him asking and I don't think that he was everyone knows he wasn't taking that many pills it's impossible but it's two and a half million dollars a year, Mandy, just so you know. Yeah, so it's let's crazy. Just put it out there right there. That's two and a half million dollars a year of street oxycodone. I, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Yeah, I don't think anybody believes it. And when the defense tries to say that, like, he was buying that many pills, the only conclusion that everybody could come that ever that anybody could possibly come up with is, okay, so he was a part of dealing, which is another offense. <laughs> I don't know why they're telling us those numbers. Like, we're supposed to feel sorry for him. Like, it's just bizarre. Um, we know he wasn't taking that many pills. And we know that, like, we know that his addiction was, we know he was taking pills, but was he, like, heroin addict, uh, what everybody else thinks when we think of an opioid addiction, no. He was putting on a lawyer outfit and going to work every day. It's not. It's not possible. I'm not going to denigrate people who have a substance abuse problem and group them and let Alex be grouped with them. He, There is no evidence whatsoever that he couldn't try a case, that he couldn't meet with clients, that he had auto accidents, that he was falling asleep on the job. Even Chris Wilson said they tried a case that year in 2021. I'm not going there. I, yes, maybe he took pills, but he was a functioning pill taker. He was not an addict that he spent every minute of every day looking for pills. I'm not going there. And I am I just think it's a disservice to people that have real substance abuse problems to now say, we're going to just explain it away that Alex had a substance abuse problem. No, Alex had a monster problem. Alex is a modern day monster. That's what came out in this trial. He deleted tweets. Uh, he deleted, excuse me, text messages. He deleted phone calls. He, um, phone calls that were from his son or text messages from his son who had died. Um, he, he told his sister-in-law, my number one goal is to clear Paul's name. Not that my number one goal should be find out who killed my wife and my son. The guy is a modern day monster. That's who he is. And it's and I know it's hard for us to confront that because we like to see monsters really be, you know, the guy that lives out like Ted Kaczynski in a shed in the middle of the, the wilderness. No, monsters live amongst us and he's one of them. I'm just so glad it's coming out now. I think that's going to be one of the hardest things for him is he has no credibility with that jury. So whatever credibility he might have come in with, with his defense team knocking down some of the things that the state was uh, having people testify to is completely gone. And 
so are so is the credibility of Jim Griffin and Dick Harpootlian. You're right about that. They are they have made some legal errors that led to their client making statements against his interest of consciousness of guilt that I'm not sure a first year law student who became a lawyer would ever let to happen to permit him to talk like he did and then Dick interfering. I believe it was interference with what took place on the late on the uh, Labor Day roadside shooting. I, I'm very I'm questioning now the real skill set of these lawyers. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> Welcome, Eric. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there, okay? But I'm here. <laughs> yeah, he didn't do his dissolve. So the jury got to hear Jim Griffin tear apart poor David Owen from SLED, who's, who had just experienced a loss in the family the day before. And I still, to the, for the life of me, cannot understand why the prosecutor, John Metters, didn't start off his direct questioning with, I'm so sorry for your loss, to at least let the jury understand where this man was emotionally, and to disarm Jim, because Jim had a really good cross with him, I think. He had a really good visual of you guys put Alec in a circle and you didn't take him out of that circle. So I think that credibility was completely destroyed, though, because then they're listening the very next day to Jim Griffin circa September 2021 sitting in on a phone call where Alec is saying the exact opposite of what Jim was asserting in his cross, which is that. Sled never looked into Eddie. They couldn't be bothered with the gang members. They didn't look into the drug stuff. And here you have Alec basically saying, Curtis is not a threat. <laughs> the drugs are not a threat. Like, this has no- has nothing to do with the murders. No threat to Buster. <laughs> yeah, no threat to Buster. Uh, so, yeah, it- it's like, Jim, you were privy to that. So why why put on that show for the jury? So I think that, personally, I think if, as, if I were a juror, that would stick t- with me. It's just... Not only does Alec not have any credibility, but I can't trust his lawyers now, uh, especially uh, after Phil Barber's last cross where, again, he's just he's grasping at straws at some of the things he's asking, but he's asking so many questions that are inappropriate for that witness. And I understand that's a defense technique, but there's a tipping point when I think when you do this stuff that you've asked way too many questions, that this guy on the stand, it's not his job, he can't answer it. The jury picks up on that, I think, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that, again, they're trying to draft a quarter, a, a tight end to also be a tight end and a quarterback at the same time. He He's doing his job. No, it's not just he's saying, I'm, that's not Adam, you know, I'm done, I'm not going to do it. But there's a certain order, a certain order how they a crime scene takes place and how an investigation unfolds and who takes the lead and then who's subordinate and what person is acquiring this external evidence. Um, I thought David Owen did a wonderful job. He showed that the state uh, didn't just hone in on Alex, that they, they took buckle swabs of a lot of different people, but it was Alex's own words which refined the investigation to focus on him. He eliminated suspects. He didn't say, hey, go look at Cousin Eddie. He said, Cousin Eddie didn't do this. 
he 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 didn't mention the cowboys by saying, "Hey, I think I'm getting blackmailed or, you know, I'm paying twice the the price of street drugs because they have information on me." None of that. He didn't offer up his clothes. Look, they asked him. I I thought it was a little backwards the way Owen clued him in first that they had the Snapchat video. I would have rather them just ask, "Hey, did you change your clothes?" and see what he said. But he didn't offer up his clothes. He didn't say, look, I'll go get those clothes for you. You're talking about the August 11th, 2021 interview. And that was a day when Duffy Stone recused himself. He uh, obviously allowed Alec to keep his badge and continue on as a volunteer at the solicitor's office. And if anyone has any doubt over whether Alec saw himself as a prosecutor, he certainly made sure that people at the crime scene knew that. And uh, in September 2021, his badge was sitting right next to him in the car, in Maggie's car. So he had to physically have put that in there. Uh, so who knows what he was using that badge for. But that day was significant, and now we know why, because that interview was so oh, – that was so dramatic. Like, it, it, first starting with Corey Fleming, it, it's almost like – Why is Corey there? Let's let, Let's just address this. But it's just this cast of characters that you're like, of course, Corey was there. He's got two lawyers already. He's got Dick and Jim. And we know. And Danny Henderson. And Danny Henderson. But you know that Corey Fleming, and he knows that Corey Fleming is involved with the Satterfield case. And he knows that the Satterfield case is coming to roost because of Mandy's articles and because his communications with Tony Satterfield. Why would you go to Corey Fleming and bring him in here. Um, I thought you said something that was interesting, Liz, when you said, I almost could hear Corey's brain turning like, oh my God, is my best friend a murderer during that interview? Yeah, I think they were there for recon, but there was definitely a moment there where it felt like Corey Corey came in hot, right? He was like, "This is the these are the rules. You're not going to ask him, like, is he a suspect? You're going to ask him, treat him like a suspect? So then when they started very obviously treating him like a suspect. Corey was like out of the picture. I mean, he was just like sitting back. So I, that's why I was thinking, I mean, I don't know if Corey- Why did they take him and pick him up out of the interview, Mandy? Just just say it's over. You have a right to say an interview's over. I'm stunned at the bad lawyering. Door was open. Well, I mean, it again, we've seen this many, many times. It's Alex's confidence. It's Alex's arrogance. Um, it's his- ability to he thinks he can manipulate everybody and we've seen that time and time again so in a in a situation where everybody else would walk out the door and say charge me if you if you got that something charge me otherwise i'm not talking um like they do in all the shows Corey should have but alex and Corey are just playing a different ballgame than the rest of us where they were at that point. And I think that... Well, cooperation's part of the manipulation. I think that's what you... Like... Yeah, and I mean, Corey... The, Corey's confidence walking in there and just like, let me tell you, blah, blah, blah. Unbelievable. But I was wondering if Corey was helping out Alex there because they needed to shut down the investigation into Alex because the investigation into Alex leads to an investigation into a lot of other people. And I was wondering that if that's why Corey was there. We'll be right back.
Like, the, you know, a lot of people were asking us why Corey didn't, and you just asked that question too, or why Corey didn't get up and, and walk Alec out of there. But I think what Mandy just said makes it clear that this was a recon mission for them to find out what the state had and what they didn't have. You know, that's in the cooperation, again, is part of the manip- manipulation. You can see it when he's giving his little Yelp review of the dispatcher. And when he's thanking uh, law enforcement and saying, I understand, I understand. And literally when one, the slut agent said to him, it doesn't make sense. Your story about this roadside shooting doesn't make sense. And he's like, I understand. Like, <laughs> we, it, it, it just defies logic. And, it, and I think that's because none of us grew up this way. And most people in, in the universe did not grow up the way Alec Murdoch did, where he just simply did not think he could ever get caught. And so I think with Corey there, I do think, Mandy, I think you're right. I do think that there is a measure of monitoring to see where the state goes so that if if there was a conspiracy, if there was, you know, if it's as large as we think it is, that then they have some warning or some understanding of what needs to be covered up or what have you. Yeah, I was listening to the questions in that interview and I thought it was really interesting in the way the questions that Corey and Alex both had. It wasn't like what I was what I was getting from them wasn't like should Buster be concerned? Should my family be concerned? Like what do you know? What can we like You mean the questions that Corey and Alec were asking? Slam? Yeah, the question yeah. the questions were like what do you know? Uh like fishing around for information on the investigation versus an actual concern for safety and an actual concern. If you had nothing to do with the murder of your wife with the, to the murders of your wife and son, then you would be in there. I would be like, so what can you tell me? Um, Do I need to leave the country? Do I need to (laughs) tell me something, you know? Why does an innocent person I keep going back to this? Why does an innocent person keep lying? I don't I don't understand that. I get it that sometimes the police railroad uh, an individual and they're 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 on that person and they they're dogging in, in bringing the charges against that person. But in this particular case, Liz, you've said it best. There was a tremendous amount of deference given to Alex and and the orbit of Alex, meaning they didn't search Almeida. And now Jim is trying to use that as a weapon by saying it's bad police work that you didn't search Almeida immediately after the murders. But you've said it best that that is a deference. How are they going to justify going to get a search warrant from a Carmen Mullen or a a Buckner or, or, or somebody else, another judge, to say, I'm going to go search Randolph Myrtle's house? That would be the end of that judge's career in that moment. Like knowing what we know now, obviously these judges probably should have, <laughs> if they were presented with that, then they were, there would have been some cover, I guess. But now, I mean, back then, no, that would have been the end of their career. And I think in addition to deference, we're going back to like the defense and their approach. Mandy, you were saying this, you said this a lot in the last week, which is just 
Mandy watched, uh, is like super into OJ Simpson right now. So she's seeing a lot of parallels, but in there, they really are true. I am. I talk about it all the time. Yeah. But the one that really stood out to me was you said that they have to, the jury goes with the most believable story, the story that they can follow, yes. the story that Johnny Cochran. Says yes. That. Johnny Cochran. And so he's like a jury, a jury buys the best narrative. Like it's, it's a competition between who has the best story and who has a story that speaks to the jurors and that makes the most sense to, to the juror. So which side is going to tell the story the best and which side? And I believe that. I know that it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And I know that the jury is told to blah, 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 and innocent until proven guilty and blah, blah, blah. But jurors are also humans and humans take information and they want to put it in a story that makes sense to them. That's just what they do. Instead of just like a lot of lawyers and super technical people want to throw all sorts of different like technical terms and things that just don't mean that much unless you have a cohesive story. And, but you said it, Liz, it's chaos and chaos does not equal reasonable doubt. Like, you know, it could in a normal case, you know, like I've seen defense attorneys that are chaotic and they do muddy things really well. And there's a couple in Beaufort County, in fact, that I think are well known for that. But the problem here is that you've hired the highest price legal team possible, uh, and maybe not the highest, but close to. And they're coming in loaded with a with a cohesive story that, that I mean that's what you're paying for, right? But their story has been that sled targeted Alec from the beginning, and then there's a pivot point where they start to say sled didn't investigate Alec enough in the beginning. If if you if you suspected him, why didn't you investigate him? Why didn't you go to Almeida? Why didn't you check his car? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you go in the house? Like why didn't you? They did go in the house, but why did, why didn't you search the house more? Or go down the drains. Again, you're going back to this as Alec Murdoch, and and going back to the justice system we want to see, there has to be probable cause for that stuff. You can't just say, like, oh, you're at your mother's house. Well, then I'm going to go to your mother's house. At that point, he did not – his credibility preceded him. He is a prosecutor. So right off the bat, there are – you know, even if he's Joe Schmo prosecutor, they're, they're going to look at him a different way, Right. Everyone knows this family, and I do think that they put on a really good front where it was unimaginable to think that Alec would do this if you were friends with Alec. So, uh, yeah, the schizophrenic narrative, and I don't know if schizophrenic is a good word there, actually, because it, it's more um, haphazard, like inconsistent. Haphazard. Haphazard. And I hope the jury sees that. Without a plan, you know, it's just winging it almost at times. Um, like yesterday morning, I was on a show with Mark Garagos and both of us agreed that Jim, you know, set the, the bait that he was, he goaded or baited Creighton into the roadside shooting, um, opened the door intentionally so that Creighton would put on Eddie and that they would have a five course meal with Eddie on cross-examination. But then later on last night and then watching Jim fight so hard this morning about it, I'm not so sure that Jim just made a mistake. What are your thoughts? That's a big mistake. I mean, I don't know. Mandy, we were talking about this last night, like whether Jim... Intentionally did it. <sighs> I'm sick of everybody. I am sick of everybody giving them the benefit of the doubt. I just want to say that, like, if, if I, I'm sorry, but if a female lawyer made the, the kind of mistakes that they are making in this trial, 
the world would not say, oh, maybe that she did it on purpose because she's got this master plan. No, they would. You must be. Like, <laughs> yeah, they turn them genius. into wizards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's playing three-dimensional chess while everybody else is playing checkers, right? Right. Right, but there's been no, they've, they've, they've made like no moves that have been impressive this entire, for the last two and a half year, wherever we are in this godforsaken thing. <laughs> I don't know the time, but in the last two years, they've done nothing that's like super, they, they do not have, they're not looking around the corner. They're not like, they're definitely not fortune tellers. Um, but the world just gives them all of this grace that like, oh, maybe they're they're doing something that we don't understand. No, it's not that. I think they just are making mistakes because I think Jim is, I, I, I don't know this because I don't know Jim for the life of me, but when I see him, I see a man who is internally struggling with the position that he's in. And I think he's making a lot of errors because he is thinking in the back of his mind, what if my friend really did kill his wife and son, and what if I've tanked my entire career trying to defend this super manipulative person? And I think that's why those mistakes are being made, because that's a lot to wrestle with. I think you're 100% right on what you're saying, and I think there's an additional um, number, and that number is, I think Jim's tired. I think he's, he's exhausted because he's doing a tremendous amount of research at night on cases, and he's writing up cross. A lot of what Dick does is by intuition, which is a, a you know a synonym for by the you know pseudonym for by the seat of his pants. Dick does not prepare like Jim is, and Jim is tired right now, and it's showing. He's he's crankier, he's shorter. Um, I think they're getting pressure from Alex himself is giving a lot of pressure to them, but I think it's like. Oh my goodness, we are now out on the branch here. And if this jury comes back with a guilty verdict, what is this going to do for the rest of my career? Dick, Dick doesn't care. He's he's so hardened and so callous and coarse that he'll just laugh it off. He'll go off and do whatever he does, go to the Senate and or you know, hang out with Joe, Joe Biden. But Jim Griffin's got to make a living. Maggie Fox has got to make a living. Those paralegals sitting at the table have to face people every day. And the reality is you may be representing a monster, a real live modern day monster. Which, you know, he deserves a defense. There's nothing, yeah, I get it. no shame in it. It's But just... don't say you're honored to represent that monster. And yeah, no, and don't, don't pull that. trickery for that monster. Like, just give him the defense. Like, don't waste this much time. I mean, the... The things that they've been doing and their tricks in the media for the past couple years, it's just way, way beyond um, helping being a defense attorney for somebody who they think is innocent. He's not innocent in any way, shape or form. And they've said that over and over. Like, I can't I can't even count the amount of times that Dick or Jim has said uh, doesn't even use the word allegedly anymore. Just stealing from clients. <laughs> uh taking drug money blah 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 like faking a roadside shooting i mean can we faking a roadside shooting why shouldn't alex be charged financially for all the money they spent on that roadside shooting 
it, it wasn't insurance fraud, okay? He's got no insurance policy. Um, it was clear that it was done to divert the attention away from him in what the police were doing because he knows after August 11th that he's a target. Okay, he knows. He- oh, he got the heck out of there too. He went to Georgia. He crossed state lines. Oh yeah. He had his family take him. You know, no one's saying that he didn't do drugs, but he was creeping south. Like I feel like he was slowly <laughs> like hopping rehab to rehab, and I think that Sled arrested him before he could leave the country. I think he was about to leave the country. To be completely honest, that's what I think was going on. Let's talk about that too, because that goes hand in hand with. So, Eric, there's a couple of things that you, I mean, we all over the place we've seen this where the Murdochs have gotten that sort of special treatment or that different treatment. Have you ever heard of a lawyer asking in a criminal investigation interview where they know that the jig is up, they know that SLED knows that Alec did not get shot at by a, a handsome, nice person, like he said, have you ever seen where Dick, Dick is questioning him in like over the phone with SLED? And he's asking the questions, and then he's coaching him during the answers when Sled finally gets to ask questions of their own. What is that about? I have accompanied uh, clients in that situation, and I've been told, Mr. Bland, you can sit here and you can listen. If you're going to interfere with the invest with this discussion, it's going to be over, and you can either leave, and your client could stay, or both of you can leave. But this is our meeting and our interview. I I was just aghast at the deference that not only they showed to Alex, but that they showed to Dick Harputlian. They would not do this with any other defense lawyer, ladies. I'm telling you, you cannot interfere in that 302 setting where they're asking you questions that if you lie to a law enforcement officer, you will be charged the same way that Martha Stewart was charged in that very type of setting. Explain uh, to everyone what a 302 is. A 302 is just what the FBI does or what it, what the SLED does when they interview you. They take notes and they give you the opportunity to talk truthfully. But if you give them untruthful information, they will use it against you. Now, I thought it was um, really ironic how Jim Griffin was like, well, you misled this guy in the interview. Well, yeah, that's what we do as police officers. We we goad you into thinking that we have more evidence against you and hopefully you'll make a confession or you'll blurt something out that'll be detrimental to you. The The only problem I had was, and you and I, Liz, traded texts about this last night, I didn't like some of the statements that Owen made to the grand jury. That, that kind of uh, put a little bit of dull... Uh, took the shine off what I thought was pretty powerful testimony. I didn't like him saying, well, I was mistaken or I was, you know, that wasn't truthful, but I thought he was good too. But these lawyers, they're crying foul. They know the rules when you go in and you talk to a law enforcement officer. They're setting hooks left and right in front of you and seeing if you're going to bite. You don't catch a fish unless that fish opens a mouth. You don't catch a criminal unless the criminal opens his mouth. That's why you don't let your client talk. That's right. And Mandy, going back to what you said about him creeping south, then we find out that they had, Sled had an arrangement with Alec to come back for the hearing in Hampton County, that first one that was like quite the circus where he got off on personal recognizance bond. He was supposed to 
be in the custody of his lawyers, and instead Buster drove him to his mama's house. And Sled was smart enough to be there to understand that you it, – it just – that's the kind of stuff that, like, once again, you know, the Murdochs are going to do the, the, to the very end. There's never an end point. They're going to fight and fight and fight to do things their way. They're not going to let you have the steering wheel. They're not going to let Sled have it. They're not going to let Dick and Jim have it, frankly. Who knows what kind of advice they're getting during the breaks from the family. Going back to the text, I want to talk about this real quick, Mandy, because I think – there's been a lot of confusion. Uh, I see a lot of people saying that David Owen from SLED lied to the grand jury. But there's two things that are important to note. And one is that one of those reports was not available when he testified to the grand jury. So that was the hematrace report. And remember that Alec did not appear to have blood on him. So when SLED tested that shirt in question, they saturated it in this chemical that has been known occasionally to cause a false negative in the hematrace test, which, which tests for human blood. So David Owen did not know that about that report. He did not, no one knew about that report. Holly from Dick's office, I think, the paralegal, uh, obviously he should give her a big bonus, but she found she found this in that uh, million pages of documents. She found a reference to this report and they, they somehow dug it up. I don't know what happened there. So he didn't lie to the grand jury. He simply didn't know. The second thing is on the stand, he said that he is not a hunter. And I think that's important because when you talk about the birdshot and buckshot, the alternating, and he used that as trickery with Alec in the questioning, the distinction is that it wasn't birdshot and buckshot, but it was two different brands of ammunition. Is that what it's called? Or bullets? I'm sorry. I don't know. Shells. Uh, shells. So it's it, he did misspeak, right? And then the third thing, and Mandy and I, you might want to speak a little bit about this, but there's a reason why we... We want one system of justice. We don't want a corrupt system. We don't want sled agents lying to grand juries. But going back to the things, I'm just, I just told you our belief on that, just how we're looking at it. But then there's the issue of we don't feel like Alec is being wrongfully targeted here. We don't think that the state is building a case against an innocent person. So I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit about that, Mandy. There's no evidence pointing to anybody else. Um, I, I can't, and I, I, can't explain enough like how much his power influence and money has already put him in a way better position than the majority of people in the justice system and like i I could go on forever but with david owen i wished it was just really painful to watch him on cross because I knew that he was, he had just suffered a loss in his family the day before. And I can't even imagine going on the stand and dealing with that the day my dad died, like the day after my dad died. It wouldn't be possible, not possible at all. I think he was doing a really good job on um, direct. And then I could just see, like, it's hard to think logically and it's hard to fight back. Um, when you're going through that kind of grief, like I think he was going through the motion. He was able to, you know, repeat information that he knew. He was able to um, confirm a lot of things. And then, but what, when it comes to being challenged logically and you're dealing with that kind of grief, I, I could tell where he was coming from there. I mean, I wish that it was a stronger. Absolutely. Do you know that he is in charge of all the evidence in the trial, the 700 or whatever uh, exhibits? He is the one that has kept up with them, kept them in order, provides them to the attorney that's going to question a particular oh, wow. witness, 
puts them back in an order after they're admitted. I mean, it is a full-time job just doing the evidence itself. Um, so, you know, I, I liked him. I liked him as a person. Yeah, I've heard good things about him, too. Um, I, I could see he was struggling uh, at times. What, what do you guys, I want to ask you something, and I've been thinking about this. I kind of look at Paul differently a little bit now than I did at the start of the trial. I, I get it that he was a, 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 a somewhat of a brat uh, for a young kid, and he was abusive, and we don't know if Morgan's going to testify on... Um, his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, Morgan. But I do look at him a little bit differently than I did in the start of the trial, you know, um, he found out some things about Alex. What do you think about the, you know, the drugs um, that he discovered or he, he clued him in that mom has an idea that about this pill box or whatever? What do you, what are your thoughts about Paul? Do you look at him the same way? Do you look at him, you know, he was, he wasn't really parented correctly. It's not so much his fault. Yes. A, a, an adult has to take responsibility, but how much bad parenting caused this? A lot of it. And I mean, I've said this before, but I can say it many times again, because I, I do feel bad. I was very, very hard on Paul in my first couple of years of reporting on this story. And deservedly, though, I would say deservedly, Mandy, it wasn't. I yeah. believe that he, I mean, he was responsible for Mallory Beach's death. I no question. I that one million percent. And he should have he should have been able to be alive to face the responsibility for that. It wasn't an isolated incident. He he had been, there was a history of that. But I think you would say this too, is that there was a point where you and I sort of came to this conclusion. And I think it was, it was definitely after the murders. I think it was, I was still working for the sheriff's office at the time. And remember, we went out to uh, lunch with a source. And I think it hit us after that, that Paul was a, a, sort of a victim of abuse in some way, obviously, like what you said, Eric, and bad parenting. But also, we never really understood him as a child of an addict until you, Mandy, started to learn more about Alex's drug use and Paul's sort of uh, involvement in calling him out on that, which goes beyond what we saw in court today, which was a voicemail from Paul on May 6th saying mom found pills in your computer bag that that's uh, there's a history that goes way farther back there i don't know if you want to talk about it a little mandy yeah the um i think what made the most sense the other day a source called me and was talking about the murdochs and how their family dynamics work and uh, she said something that like really stuck with me Buster was exactly like his – Buster was more like his father than Paul was like his father, a lot more. Paul was the outcast of that family. And as John Marvin was the outcast of his little – of his generation, um, well, whatever. An outcast for them is that he's, like, not a lawyer. Right. As an outcast. <laughs> right. But it's, like, the – I think – but it, think about it, though. Like, Buster is like his father in the, like, he doesn't really question anything. He doesn't, I think Paul, it's it's against the, the Murdoch family values to tell your dad, like, what are you up to? To question, like, are you sure you should be doing that? Blah, blah, blah. You're just supposed to put your head down and you're supposed to go along to get along and you're supposed to stay loyal. And I think Paul was different. I've that. been the one who's been saying all along for a while that I feel really bad for Buster. 
but I'm looking at Buster in a whole different light. It's amazing how three weeks can change a narrative. How so? Because I look at how Buster's behavior in court, and I'm looking at some of his body language and, you know, whether he gave somebody the finger, he gave me. I don't think he gave Mark the finger. I really don't. I think it was purposeful. He gave me the stink eye, Liz. I'm just telling you. And I'm looking at him. I think Mandy is spot on. He is a clone of his father. Yeah, very social, political, like very shake your hand. I can see that with Buster. Yeah, he's he's no just quiet kid. There's there's a, a, a real fire inside of him that I see. Um, so I, I'm looking at Paul a little differently and I'm looking at Buster a little differently. I'm just being honest. Uh, let me just say this. I'm not a psychologist. Again, I feel like I say that all the time, but there are certain personalities that can be susceptible to a narcissist in that they uh, they can't speak up or they, they fall sort of into the, uh, they, they read by the script that the narcissist wants. And I think kids like Paul, I, he just doesn't strike me as somebody who, he never struck me as somebody who was as susceptible as Buster. Buster just seems very susceptible to me, based on the jailhouse calls and sort of his demeanor in court and what have you, um, like maybe, I mean, he's 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 his father's son, like you said, Mandy, but I think that there is abuse there too. And, and you agree with that, I know that. I think something to understand about Paul is that he definitely was a complex person with um, serious pro, and I've known people like this, that turn into a different person when they drink. And I think Al, I think Paul had a lot of problems that could have been solved with mental health therapy and a lot of other things, but his parents didn't believe in that for whatever reason. And he drank a lot of alcohol to, and that only made him worse. But people keep asking like, why do we keep hearing that Paul was this perfect angel and somebody completely different in trial? And Paul was just multidimensional and had a really, really bad side. And he also had a good side. And that's how a lot of humans are. So I I just wanted to say that. And also, I think that there's a a sort of a you don't speak ill of the dead with family members, especially in in a public way. I think that would be kind of crappy for them, for people to say stuff. But um, what so what do you guys think is the most damning evidence you've seen? And I, I know this is I'll say this, you know, when Creighton says a, a reasonable doubt, like you have to know it's raining, use your context to see that it's raining when somebody walks in from the rain rather than seeing the rain out the window. I feel like they got there. I feel like it definitely know it's raining outside and I know it's probably pouring outside. Uh, so I understand that this is just these a hundred different pieces to this that uh, make up the whole in terms of us thinking that Alec is guilty. Mandy, for you, what is the biggest piece of evidence so far or the or the biggest moment during this trial where you realize that 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 just there's no explaining that there's no going back from that? That's a good question. I will say that there was a bit this isn't a piece of evidence, but I'm really, really glad that the roadside shooting evidence was allowed in. And I thought that it was going to overcomplicate things and just uh, make the trial a lot longer and confuse everybody. But I saw a big shift in public opinion after yesterday when they started uh, really telling the jury about everything that went down there. Because 
I it just took me back to 2021 when like everybody said we were crazy over and over for like even looking at Alex and even being slightly suspicious of him after the murders of his wife and son. And the shooting happened and everyone was and then we found out that they were lying about it for weeks and again whatever. After that, everybody was like, what's up with this Alex Murdoch guy? What else is he capable of? Like, a real big shift of how people thought of him. And I think it was very important to also see how deceiving his attorneys are, too. And again, his attorneys are telling the jury a story. And if the jury, if, if his attorneys come off as deceiving or lying in any way it's harder for them to tell that story and for it to hit the jury in the way that they want to they want it to so I don't know I was just I forgot how important all of that all of that stuff was and how telling it is to Alex's character like how he threw the um the knife and it's like, huh, there's another piece of evidence in this case that was thrown on the side of the road. Across uh, the street. He didn't even make <laughs> yeah. an effort. He just threw it. Like, and the, again, yeah, he threw the phone. And I, I heard them today questioning whether he could have put uh, the stash that evidence at Almeida. And it's like, this is a guy who throws stuff. He just throws it. It doesn't, he's not expecting you to to actually look behind him. So and, that, and I found that interesting. But Eric, what what do you think the biggest? That's very easy for me. Um, up until today, it was a totality and a combination of the the lies about the kennel, and the the Snapchat video of the dog and the tail, and every everybody who was hit close to him, Ronnie Crosby, um, the two the two uh, friends of Paul, uh, and then the police officer saying. You know, he lied about being at the kennel. To me, that that combination was so powerful. But today, I really felt like I was riding in the car with Alex. When they went in the car and used the GM information, I felt like I was with Alex after the murder, going to Almeida, the car slowing down, him throwing the phone the speeding on a road that had not been paved, the deer, and I see deer because I live out in the country. So I know the deer that I see. I can only imagine where it's very plentiful, where people are hunting deer and they're always on the move. When he came home and 17 seconds, he calls 911, which would not have given him enough time to have been in shock that you see your wife and son blown to bits like Dick says, butchered, like Dick's favorite word. Right. And then to have enough presence of mind to flip him over and check for a pulse. You, you just, He couldn't have done it. So we know that that's an absolute 100% lie. Now we have to figure out, he probably pulled the phone out before he left for Almeida. After he shot Paul, that's when the phone came out because Dr. I Kinney so. said there was blood inside of Paul's pocket. Right. Agreed. So for me, Mandy and Liz, it was, geez, this, this, again, this technological evidence is so powerful, not the blood. I don't, I don't get moved by blood and DNA anymore. I get moved by this really neat eye in the sky watching what we're doing through phones, through electronic equipment in our cars and in our head, in our house. What is yours, Liz? 
What's yours? Oh, okay. So this is not, I'm not talking about like this single piece of evidence can stand on its own. But when Marion, Maggie's sister, testified that she asked Alec who could have done this. And I think, Mandy, you and I were talking about this last night too, that Marion really normalized the situation because the Murdochs, the normal reaction should be we're under attack. Uh, somebody is trying to kill us <laughs> and we're now worried about the others of us that are surviving. And you just really didn't see that. Uh, you haven't seen that anywhere in this in this trial, any evidence of that. Uh, but Marion acted like a normal person in that regard, which is, I'm really worried for my nephew. I'm worried for my brother-in-law. I don't know what's going on. So she's trying to seek answers. It's very heartening and it's very, it just makes you realize that like, Oh, that's right. We're not all just robots who are loyal to a name. We actually love each other and there's... <laughs> but anyway, she said that she asked Elick who could have done this and his response was, whoever it was had been thinking about it for a very long time. And that moment was... It, it, it clicked with something that I've heard other people say behind the scenes about thinking that he had planned this for a very long time, for six months or more. So I I think that was the moment for me. I big, And thought about yeah, it. Yeah, and thought yeah. about it. Because it's not, it's not necessarily like, there's so much good, I mean, there's so much good evidence in my opinion. There's so many things that just add up perfectly to me where it's like, you can't explain this stuff. I can't forgive you and I can't overlook your lies this many times. You've one, two, misspoke or you're in shock and you say that you weren't there and you were there. Fine, but this is this is everything you said was a lie. It's just all, all of it. So that, but to hear that he answered her that way was such. It was so insightful to what he was thinking, and it made me realize, like, because you and I have gone back and forth, or all of us have actually. Did he plan it? Was did he lose his mind? Like, what happened that night in those in the the minutes after that video? Did he flip out? But. The more I think about it, and now after Marion's testimony, I, I see that this has been on his mind for a long time, and he's thought about it, and he's fantasized about it, and and he did it. Do you think Paul and Alex struggled that night? Because we're going to hear that Alex is six feet five, right? And that it would be physically impossible for that upward shot to happen unless Alex was below him. I think he was crouched. I think that he. Uh, I think that Paul, he shot Paul once and uh, Paul started to move forward slowly. And I think that Maggie came, this is just me, it's an opinion. He, she came running, she heard the shot and he went to go grab the blackout. So he was down in a crouch position and Paul surprised him by walking out. Cause the shot, the second shot was outside the door uh, as Paul was sort of in the door frame or out just outside the door frame, right? So you don't see a physical struggle ha have happened. No, there was no evidence of a physical struggle. The ground wasn't, uh, there's no like, dust kicked up or anything right. like that i think that he stuck the the muzzle whatever it's called on the shotgun into the room and shot at him uh which is you know the way i guess you would do it if you actually did love your son and you want i can't even make sense of it but no i don't think they struggled i think i think me i think we were told we were under the impression that maggie ran from him i i changed my mind on that i i do think that she was running toward her son and I think that she got shot uh, and doubled over and that's how she ended up in that position facing toward him. And I think he circled her from what um, from what uh, the testimony said that he circled her and shot her and yeah. We'll be right back. 
So let me ask you, Mandy. So you, do you think like, I look at everything like a baseball game. So we're probably in the seventh, eighth inning, right? Seventh or eighth inning. And I think the prosecution's winning like 9-5. And they have to be up by four runs because I think Dick will, during the course of this week, score some blood. Something's going to happen to make the jury go, ooh, or us to go, ooh. Are they up enough to, because, you know, primacy is so important and they're going to forget what happened three weeks ago. Maybe one or two will remember it when they get in the jury room and they start deliberating. Are they up enough is what I'm saying. The prosecution is up. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Um, Are they up enough? I just keep going back to this and this is just how I think of things. I'm just not hearing a cohesive story that makes any sense from the defense. I'm not hearing anything that's like believable that I can, like in the OJ trial, I could see how those jurors see this super racist cop planning evidence and then all the evidence goes out the window. That makes sense. But targeting Alex Murdoch unfairly when we've seen interview after interview where sled agents by their body language, by their questions, everything you can tell that they do not want it to be Alex Murdoch. They want it to be somebody else. But Alex is giving them nothing <laughs> besides look at me. And he just is way too cocky about it. And he's way too confident. And he tells on himself in various different ways, like what he did with Marion. I think that he he dropped all these little clues all the time that was just telling on himself. Is there defense at this point you don't have enough to implicate Alex? Or are they going to say it's third-party guilt? That, that it's two shooters or, you know, poor Mr. Rowe, he seemed to be the uh, <laughs> uh, the, the uh, assailant du jour. He became the assailant du jour uh, for a while, but then he's cleared. But then, you know, Maggie has black, uh, brown hair in her uh, hand and she has certain DNA under her fingernails. No, she does not. She has an unidentified male profile under her fingernails. I got it. But what I'm saying, what is their defense, Liz? But wait, what? Liz should Liz should explain this though, because the the DNA the DNA thing is confusing people, and the hair is throwing people off. Yeah, I don't know how much I can say on the hair because I didn't understand that. Do you, I think the hair was just by her hand. The DNA that was under her nail, she came from the nail salon. And she got a pedicure. I, we've never heard that she had a manicure. I know that Phil Barber tried to insinuate that her hands would be impeccably clean because of that manicure. You can pick up touch DNA very easily from other people. And this DNA was an unidentified male who was unrelated to her. They compared it with DNA from C.B. Rowe, who was their groundskeeper. And there were three what's called alleles that matched his. It is so insignificant of a number that it, you cannot say that that was C.B. Rowe. Those three alleles, anyone in that courtroom could have had as well. I think it's just easier for the defense to, to insinuate that or to, to seize upon that information and to exploit it because what, that's what they do, right? But Eric, I want to ask you, you say the score is nine to five, and I do think that that is fair, but I'm actually not sure that I could answer this question. What are the five runs that you think that the defense have, has gotten? Like, how do you think that they, they're up, they're down? With well, I think, they, I think some of the search warrant stuff was bad. Um, I don't think taking blood evidence from the drain and testing the drains was good. 
I think that uh, Jim did a real good job on his cross-examination of the GSR, that some could be on the stand from the fact that people were handling the jackets. Um, I think the whole blue jacket tarp thing got too confusing, and I'm still confused on it, I got to tell you. I'm just going to be honest. What are you confused about? There's no blood on the inside of it. You would think that there would be something that would have rubbed off from the guns if he did tote the guns or he toted some clothes. There should be something on the inside. I'm a little confused. So I think that they've done a nice job at confusing what actually happened at Almeida. You know, did he go back to the smokehouse? Because I think you told me he took Mr. Randolph's truck and drove it back to the back of the house. I think that we can just go back to, we know that he had that raincoat in his arms. Uh, we know that Shelly saw it. And I will say she's a credible witness because now that we've seen the GMC data, we can see that he was there 19 minutes and some change. So she she estimated it correctly. That was not known uh, as well as we knew it today. Yeah, so uh, I it's, think it's that- It's not five home runs. It's more of singles being hit in or a walk. Yeah, it's or crappy. A walk. It's not, nobody hit these tape measure home runs, but. Yeah, I, I got it. I, I believe that Jim Griffin has had more effective cross-examinations in this trial than Dick Harpootlane has. I can't remember. Well, I think preparing is important, isn't it? Doing your homework is important. I cannot remember a memorable cross by Dick, but I can remember some effective not memorable, but effective cross-examinations by Jim. So whether it's 9-4, I think the, the state is up. And I'm, are they up enough that they can afford to lose a little bit and get a couple more runs scored against them and survive? That said, where do you think the defense is going to go? Where do you think their main strategy is going to be in presenting their, their case of why he didn't do this? Mandy? Well, like Jim is hinted a couple times cowboy town is where <laughs> jim has wanted to take us several You're times so right. yeah. um he really wants to go to cowboy town so um and i don't think there's anything to that but it, there could be i think a plausible explanation and i was worried about like the roadside shooting evidence um and what marion said cuz she kind of left the jury with not having a lot of clarity as to what happened with the roadside shooting. And she was saying, I was really afraid for our family, blah, blah, blah. And the, the I'm saying all that to say that the jury might be able to buy that Alex was caught up in a serious gun or a serious gang, drug gang, and they snuck onto Moselle and murdered his wife and son. But... Alex kind of messed that up. Yeah, they, they they magically went in the house and got the guns while he was not in the yes. house. Then he went yes. back in the house and he cleaned up a little bit of food and Maggie's pajama pants or whatever. He didn't hear any of the gunshot <laughs> when he was in the house. And oh, by the way, he actually was at the kennel about a minute before, five minutes before the shootings took place. Didn't smell gunpowder when he came out of the house. Was supposed to go see his dad. And as far as we know, he saw his mother twice before he ever went to see his dad, who was dying and was the love of his life. So help me here, please, Mandy. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm... <laughs> She's, she's going with the best that they've got. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm saying that's yes. the best. 
Well, because I was, I mean, again, and going back to the, the best evidence that the prosecution has put up so far, I uh, the cell phone evidence and Alex's voice is super damning. And the, uh, I mean, the, the timeline that they put together today is very, very hard to Pierce. give a reasonable explanation. They can't. Because, and I, I said this on Twitter, like, what person, the, the story that they're telling is insane. A person wakes up from a nap, and I don't know about you guys, but when I wake up from a nap at 9 o'clock at night on my couch, I go to my bed because <laughs> it is time to go to bed at that point. I don't wake up and say, you know, I want to go see my mom and then walk very quickly, maybe jog, <laughs> a lot of steps. Uh, and then the he reached speeds of 75 miles per hour going to see his mom on the way. And that was seemed very weird to me. The other just crazy, crazy piece of evidence that I can't get past that the route that he took during this time that really looks like he was building an alibi is also where Maggie's phone was found the next day. Like, uh, uh, that's crazy to me. And again, if there were some random killers out there, they would... Uh, that's just... <laughs> I, I don't, like, they wouldn't take her phone and then throw it. That shows a crime of passion. Her phone... And then leave Paul's. That just doesn't make any sense. And leave Paul's. It shows It shows that there's whoever, like, wasn't thinking and they were panicking. And it's also, like, a it's a thing that you do in a crime that you're very close to and involved with, right? Like, I think he took her phone because I think he was trying to see if she called 911 on him, what she did. Switching gears... Judge Newman, I said this on Twitter today, but I really would like his next career to be like teaching calmness and peace of mind. I would like to take a master class from him because he stays so incredibly Zen. calm, cool, and collected. Zen and smart and on top of it. And like, Zen. Man, it's crazy that him and Dick Arpulian are just a few years apart in age because they seem centuries apart in my eyes. Like, ugh. So let me clear up for the listeners. The motion for a directed verdict is perfunctory. It must be done in every case after the state completes their uh, direct case, their first part of the case. It's always made by the defense. It has to be made to preserve appellate rights. And we've heard a lot about Dick talking about, I apologize, Your Honor, is this an exception? I make my exception. I want to reiterate, we're not going to object because we already have the exception. The, the directive verdict is a very low standard. And what that standard says is, has the state produced enough evidence that a jury could reasonably determine the guilt or of the defendant, and it, the evidence is mute is viewed in the light most favorable to the state. So Judge Newman said there is ample evidence that has been garnered. If the jury believes that they could find guilt, I therefore deny the motion for directed verdict. So I know a couple of people had their holding their breath. It's done in every case, and a judge never. Uh, 
uh, grants it. I will say the line of, for me, of the trial by Judge Newman was, if you're going to make the decision to dance through fire, how dare you think that you're not going to be burned or scarred? I thought that was just amazing. What do you think, Liz? Yeah, but it, it was off of his thing of it, you went a bridge, you know, that introducing the suicide, the roadside incident, we'll call it, introducing that evidence would be a bridge too far. And he reiterated to Jim because after that ruling, Jim went again and reopened the door. And so he made the point that, you know, I told you a bridge too far. What do you mean by reopening the door? Explain that to me. Well, by asking the witness a, a question. I know what it means. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I don't technically know what it means, I guess, but it, it's he asked the witness a question that weren't that garnered an answer that spoke to the evidence that he didn't want admitted. Right. Is that the Correct. way to say it? Exactly. Yeah. So self-inflicted, self-inflicted. And he did that a couple of times. Um, my other favorite Newman quote was if you, that's why your question shouldn't lead into things that are inflammatory. Oh, I didn't, I missed that one. He said that to Jim. That's why your question shouldn't lead into that. Cause Jim was like, that's inflammatory. And and then he goes, well, your questions should lead into things that are inflammatory. That's your right. But yeah, he's been funny. I love him. He's great. What do you think the biggest issue right now is for the jury to uh, overcome for a guilty verdict? Do you think that there is something that they're going to have? Is there any sort of uh, leap of logic or co cognitive dissonance that they're going to have to have in their mind based on what the state has presented so far? I don't think they need to get into motive anymore. I, I don't think that they have to find this prepackaged, beautiful, ribboned up motive. We're not going to find it because Alex is a sick man. So whatever motive that he had in his head isn't going to make sense to 12 jurors. I think what they're going to get back to is the technical lies that he told that in they're going to common sense is going to prevail in that jury room and say innocent people don't tell these kind of lies to the police and to the people closest to them. They just don't do it. And I think it's a common sense. Remember, we talk about the God given common sense, 24 years and 24 eyes. These jurors are seeing stuff and they're hearing stuff. And I think motive is not going to be a, a big an issue as people think it has to be. That's my opinion. Mandy, what do you think? Yeah, I, do, I don't think that it's ever going to make perfect sense, I think. But the, the roadside shooting showed us that Alex's way of thinking does not make any sense. It shows that when the walls are... Yeah, his problem-solving skills suck. Yeah, and when the walls are crumbling around him, which they never have before in his entire life, he chooses violence and he chooses uh, something that is so chaotic and crazy that... The rest of the world can't even wrap their heads around it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the state just needs to stick with the big picture, the story that makes sense. And that is what's going to stick with the jury. What the defense, I think the defense is probably going to be like, lack of evidence, blah, blah, blah. But we're talking about a prosecutor who knows how to get away with murder. <laughs> so... The lack of evidence doesn't really bother me like it would in other cases if it was somebody that... You mean the lack of forensic evidence? Forensic, yes. I think that, in that there's plenty of evidence. Um, 
whether that's circumstantial or not, it's it's a it's enough to be damning in my eyes. And I hope that the state didn't. I I think the other thing that was just troublesome, and I don't know how they could have gotten around this, but like just we were so bogged down by so many different witnesses and so much information that was hard to make sense of. Uh, it got confusing for a while, but I, I think they had a, a beautiful, beautiful decision to end on sled agent Peter Rudofsky. The timeline guy. Yeah, he was great. It was it was amazing. Um, and and he just it, he told a story that made sense. And when he was when Phil crossed him and said something like, "Don't you think this is normal?" What was that part? Alec was searching on Google for a restaurant at 1040 that night. So like 25 minutes after he got off the phone with 911, he's like checking this. No way. Yeah. No oh, way. swear to God. Yeah. No way. No way. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Whaley's restaurant. <laughs> I, would, I would have my arms wrapped around my wife and my son mm -hmm. and the jaws of life. Couldn't pull my arms apart. Oh, and he was looking at a bikini picture. Yeah, he was looking at a bikini text. Yeah. And then he's telling CB Row, uh, could you come by tomorrow? Could you come by sunflowers. at 8 or something? Come, come take care of these sunflowers. There's no way. I missed that. Are you serious? Dead serious. That's enough right there. That's enough right there. Guilty. Right there. Well, that's what Mandy's saying is that that witness was like, I would think... He's like, as an investigator, I know that I wouldn't be doing that. And, and he's like, oh, you wouldn't call family and friends? Yeah, I'd call family and friends. That's not checking a restaurant, looking up texts that have nothing to do with murder. Oh my God. He was telling CB Row, like, we're going to have a lot of people on the property, yes. so we got to make it look nice. Like, why party. are you worried about that right now? <laughs> 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 And we've seen that funeral picture, by the way, and it is a party. There was a party. I wonder. I wonder if Whaley's catered the funeral. And I wonder oh if my that's god, Mandy! Oh my god! Like he was ready to plan a party. And on that note, guys, we should end. We should end it with that kind of insanity. Okay, I guess we should end so. with that kind of insanity. I want to say though, one thing. I think the only thing that the jury has to overcome right now is the name Murdoch, and that's it. So that's all I'll say, and I will put my cup down for that. Have a wonderful President's Day, and uh, don't forget to rate and review us. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. Cups down, guys. Cups down. This Cup of Justice episode is created and hosted by me, Mandy Matney, with co-host Liz Farrell, our executive editor, and Eric Bland, attorney at law, a.k.a. the Jackhammer of Justice. From Luna Shark Productions. Ah!